welcome to the Enlightened Practice Podcast, brought to you by the Luminello Electronic Medical Record folks. Here's your host, Dr. Ken Breslow. Hey, hi, everyone. Today, we have a special guest on the podcast. I'm really happy to be welcoming a friend, a colleague, and someone I've learned a lot from. Um, Dr. Amy Berlin is joining us. She's a psychiatrist, and she's passionate about how suitable information systems help organizations manage change while enabling individual physicians to think creatively within their practices. She sees adults of all ages in her psychotherapy and pharmacotherapy practice, and she regularly teaches at the Psychotherapy Institute in Berkeley, California. And uh, she's also a Luminello user, and i um, very excited to have her on the podcast today. So welcome, Amy, to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Today, we're going to talk about workflows in um, practice management and mm-hmm. how they help with clinical care. And it's such a broad concept. And I thought we'd start off by just setting the stage for what is a workflow anyway? And what does that mean for clinicians? Yeah, that's a great question. When I, when I think about workflows, I think of like, it's how you work. It, in my mind, a workflow refers to a process that you might repeat in the course of your workday many times, something that's pretty habitual, like how you would document intakes, when and how you would bill patients, how you respond to prescription refill requests. For each of these tasks, there's probably a consistent habitual way that you complete them. And that process is called your workflow. That's interesting. As you say that, I wonder how many workflows per day I have that I don't even realize that Uh I have. Uh You think most of our practice is workflow-based during the day or half of it? What's it like in your practice? Well, one thing that I remember learning when I was um, doing a lot of work in the healthcare information technology space was there's an optimal balance between the things that are repetitive. The more those can be streamlined, the more room there is, more bandwidth there is, for the parts of our work that actually require creative problem solving. So I think when I think about my work, I think, yeah, there's a decent amount of things that are, if you will, rote, repeated um, processes that just have to get done. And there's also a fair amount of creative problem solving that happens. That's what I love about psychiatry. It's like we get to we get to think creatively mm-hmm. all the time. So never had to try to quantify like what percentage is what um but and probably you know different people like different balances like I think I probably like a balance where 30 to 40 percent of the time I'm doing things that are repetitive and just you know efficiently getting things done and 60 to 70 percent of the time I'm getting to think creatively like that's probably an optimal balance for me but I imagine depending on the type of work that you're doing, and even within the field of psychiatry or mental health, that probably varies. Does that that make sense? It does, yeah. So let's say I'm new to practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where does the rubber meet the road here? uh, How does this apply to me? What should I be thinking about as I uh, start out on my journey? Well, I'm 
I've always been passionate about maximizing efficiency and thinking, is there a way to streamline this? That's just where my mind has always gone. And so I think that, you know, anyone who's new to practice has come out of residency. I'm I'm talking about psychiatry practice, but, you know, that's an anyone who's new to practice has come out of some training. And in that training, most likely you were working in some organization where you had to see patients and, and, and had to either adapt to the workflows that were there to some degree, and also like learn how to do your own way of doing things. So everyone has their probably more, more practiced ways of taking an initial history or, you know, doing a suicide risk assessment. Like all of these things are things that I think are we're best if if there's a consistent way that you do them um again like i think that's for example the idea of the right amount of structure to leave room for the right amount of creative problem solving if you think about a suicide risk assessment every time you do that you're reinventing the wheel for what questions you ask and how you assess someone's level of risk that's a lot of energy going into creating a process but if you have your typical way for asking questions about history of suicidal ideation or history of self-injurious behavior, then as you just ask those questions that are available for you to um, pull from your procedural memory, so to speak, it leaves a lot of room for you to really be paying attention to the answer that you're getting and thinking critically about that. So all this to say is that for folks who are starting out in practice, they probably already have a lot of built-in styles and workflows that they've accumulated along the way. And if by new to practice, you mean launching your own private practice, that's a really good opportunity to evaluate, okay, is this, is this way of writing up a new intake, what I got when I was working at XY organization or hospital, it, does it really work for me? It's a good way to, to, to re-examine if what you've come to, what's become your practice or your learned way of doing things is still going to work in your new setting or if you need to refine things a little bit. I like how you're parsing it out in terms of clinical workflows and also then there's the practice management workflows. Right, right. Uh, What do you think are some workflows that would be useful to think through on the practice management side as you're thinking about starting a practice? Um, So the first thing that comes to mind is bringing a new patient into your practice, you know, how they make contact with you, how you have an initial screening triaging conversation with them. Is that something that's done by phone? Is that something that's done asynchronously by secure email? Uh, How you get them to the point that they reviewed all the requisite paperwork, whether it's practice policies. Uh, I also have folks sign a, a telehealth consent, getting what you need to get from them in terms of payment. Are they going to be, you know, all my patients pay by credit card. So for for me, that means getting their credit card information. If you're going to be billing an insurance, getting their insurance information. So there's all this information that you need from your patients. And there are steps that you need them to take in order to get them all the boxes checked in terms of um, being ready to receive care in your practice. And so that's an example of a practice management workflow that comes to mind for that, for folks new to practice or anybody, quite honestly. I'm just wondering about how overwhelming it can feel to have to think about all these different kinds of workflows. Yeah. Uh, new patient, 
follow-up patient, but then maybe a medication patient versus versus psychotherapy uh, patient. Yeah. Right. 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 And then maybe depending on referral source or type of evaluation, exactly. you know, forensic versus mm-hmm. clinical. I could see how it would get overwhelming uh, potentially pretty quickly yeah. to think through all of these different workflows. And then just adding to our, our matrix here, I guess, billing versus scheduling mm-hmm. versus getting clinical feedback uh, outside of sessions. Right. Uh, and then even breaking that down to, you know, if you're working with families, feedback from the parents, right. feedback from teacher, right. it's just like right. Right. so many different uh, pathways here. How do you recommend uh, um, clinicians keep from getting overwhelmed thinking about all of these different permutations? Yeah. So, I mean, this is something that, because, you know, as you were saying, getting overwhelmed and this is this, I know this is not how many people feel, but I actually get excited when I think about, oh, wow, like <laughs> how can we craft a new workflow that's going to be really streamlined? Um, but what I'm, but also I'm always optimizing. Like the, the way that I did it five years ago is not the way that I do it today. So I say that, that this is always a work in progress. I think I wouldn't try to buy off all of those potential new workflows. If you're getting started in practice, get comfortable with one clinical scenario and and the workflows that are required to take on adult patients for medication management before you try to figure out how you're gonna bring families into your practice. And because you're gonna learn things about how you work best from that experience, and those things are gonna be translated to the additional workflows that you take on. So that's a very long way of saying, Mm. take it slow and it's an iterative process. Mm-hmm. What are some things that you were doing uh, earlier in your career uh, that are you've modified or doing better now? Yeah, well, earlier in my career, I didn't have as sophisticated an electronic health record as I have now. So there's a lot of things that I can do now that just weren't possible then. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's I think that's a big differentiator. I remember when I was first um, setting out, and I had. I was meeting with the person that I was going to sublet from. And she said something to me about how she can usually tell from the first voicemail that she gets from a patient, whether or not she's going to want to work with them. And I was oh. in awe. I was like, really? That's yeah. something you can figure out. And fast forward a number of years, uh, these days I get most inquiries via email. So I don't have the voicemail anymore, but it got to the point where I could pretty quickly tell from voicemail. So one of the things that changes, I used to spend a lot more time on the phone talking to people and even doing an initial risk assessment to make sure that I wasn't bringing someone on that was going to require a lot of in-between session contact or a lot of acuity. And I both got more confident about in-between session contact and acuity as I got further advanced in my practice. So I'm not as worried about that. And I also feel like I can really tell when I listen to someone what's going to, what's going to be required. And I'm much better at saying, here's the sort of availability I can offer. And if that's not good, and I have a feeling that's not going to work for you. So it's all these things just get more practice and easier. So a lot less time triaging than I do now is one thing that's changed. I'll make a pause here to invite our listeners to share this podcast with others. If you find it useful, you'll find us on Apple podcasts and Spotify. Also, send us your questions and comments. Our email is enlightenedpractice at luminello.com. 
That's enlightenedpractice at luminello.com. Now back to the conversation. It's just, the, there's a, a lot of the things that I did at the beginning in terms of getting forms signed and getting payment information was what I was doing when I first started out. But I would say that the way I was able to do that was much clunkier. You know, now I can just ask my patient to go on their portal and put that information in. And I don't actually have to be part of that process where I used to have to get that information from them, have them transcribe it, scan it, save it as a PDF. So, so it's the, the way it happens is different, but the, the, the principle of the information I'm trying to get is largely the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You think about groups and clinics. How is how do they think about workflows differently or similarly compared to clinicians in solo practice? Right. So a few things come to mind when I think about comparing and contrasting. I mean, certainly there are similar principles that the more streamlined a workflow is, the more bandwidth the people completing the work have to problem solve other things. A big difference is that, you know, I'm a solo practitioner. I don't have, it's just me. I don't have any support staff. So I get to decide how I want to deploy a workflow and then I get to practice it and then I get to refine it. And in group practices, there there are workflows that involve more than one person. So there are handoffs of tasks, handoffs of information. And so there's a lot more coordination that has to happen. There's a lot more education that has to happen. And I also think there's a lot, this is the most important thing, more input that has to be gathered from the people doing the workflow. What I mean by that is if I'm deciding how I want to design a workflow, for example, this new, the new law, the No Surprises Act, right? Now that's a new workflow. Now I have to come up with a way to generate a good faith estimate for my new patients or for my existing patients. I have to talk to them about the fact that I'm doing this. I have to send that to them, but that's between me and myself. How I want to do that. Um, A group practice ideally is going to sit down and anyone who's going to be implicated by this new responsibility is going to get to participate in designing that workflow. So if there's going to be an administrative staff function that gets deployed in providing good faith estimates to patients, Ideally, the group practice is including those administrative staff people and making decisions about how this is going to go down. So thinking about the fact that the workflow relies on multiple people and how those people, um, the touch points between steps in a workflow that occur also between different people, and also about how feedback gets given, about how smoothly workflow is given so that it can be optimized when you're just one person, you get to have that feedback conversation with yourself and change things. So, so that's, um, that's one difference that comes to mind. I can say more, but I don't know if there's. No, I'm just thinking about groups that uh, we meet with uh, mm-hmm. when we are giving a demo and, and sometimes it becomes more of a, a, a conversation about workflows than it is a, about the demo itself. Right. Because most groups already have their own workflows. They may not be thrilled with them or they not, right. may not be very efficient, but they're right. the workflows they know. And you know, what kind of advice would you give to group owners or um, the, the folks who are responsible for controlling workflows when they have to shift from 
old workflows to new ones, even if in the long run, they're more efficient. Right. Change is really challenging. What would Change you say is to so them? Hard. Yeah. 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 I'm going to answer that question, but you reminded me of another thought I have about a difference, which I think is related to this. I'm going to insert that because sure. a lot of groups, I imagine, um, because this isn't so much the case in, in, in solo practice, but the good faith estimate is an example of this because groups have a lot, tend to have a lot more regulatory responsibilities to mm. respond to, to comply with. Mm-hmm. And so whenever I'm thinking about workflows for a larger organization, where I like to start, what I find to be a really orienting way to, to think about that. So this helps with the change management is what's your, what's the end product? Where, what are you trying to, what do you need at the end of the day? For example, is there a particular a regulatory compliance goal that needs to be met? Is there, a, um, is there some answer around um, the, the volume of patients coming in every month that you want to have a benchmark around? Is there some large organization that requires certain benchmarks be met in one way or another? Is there uh, some sort of accrediting agency that requires things be documented a certain way? So whenever there are like requirements that need to be met, by a process, I start with those requirements and try to move backwards in designing the workflow that's going to best land the organization at the place where they've met those requirements. I don't know if this sounds too abstract. That's not something that individual practitioners have to think about as much. Like I don't have to submit any reports to anybody at the end of the month describing my productivity and that sort of thing. Um, So, but I take that lens to the change management piece because the question is how painful is it with the current workflows for you to meet these requirements? How painful is it for you to answer these questions about um, productivity or volume of patients seen or revenue in your organization every month? And so sometimes it's, it helps with pivoting the workflows, if you will, and the pain of change to notice that there's already a lot of pain embedded in the current workflow. Does that make sense? Oh, I'm just thinking about when we, it does make sense that when we do our demos and, you know, we're, we have one eye on the product, but we're also looking at the, uh, the folks who are on the screen share with us to see their reaction. Right. And sometimes I can see the, if, if, if I'm on a demo, it's with a very large group typically, and we can see the cognitive dissonance in real time, (laughs) you know, they're so used. And sadly, with uh, many first generation EMRs, things were not designed with workflows in mind, or certainly not designed from the clinician's perspective or for the clinician's benefit. And they're so used to having 10 steps for the most routine of workflows. And we show them something that can be done in a step or two, um, maybe even something that's automated, and they just sometimes <laughs> just like crickets. Um, as I can <laughs> tell, they're like trying to process, like, but what about the other nine steps? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, we don't try and um, talk them into anything. It's really for them to um, metabolize and then right. you know, hopefully realize that there's there's a lot of value here. Yeah. Uh, but how, you know, what at that moment of cognitive dissonance, yeah. uh, what, what do you think, uh, they should be 
thinking or should, how should groups, your clinics, you know, approach that? Well, this is a place where I actually think my clinical skills are more relevant than my workflow building skills, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Because it's true. It's really disorienting, you know? Um, and I'm just, I'm, let me finish that thought. It's really disorienting to see something that you've been doing this way for so long yeah. be done this other way. And it's like, it can, it can really take a minute to wrap your mind around it. And, and then there can be all sorts of feelings that come up, right? Like, um, this maybe doesn't sound like an apt analogy, but just because I assume that many of the people listening to this podcast also are in the mental health space. So they've had this experience of where you sit with someone and they tell you they're suffering and you're able to tell them, I know what that is. And we have, we have a clinical concept that describes what that is. There's a way to help that. And it can be a really bittersweet moment for people, right? On the one hand, they feel really understood and there's relief. And then there can be a lot of grief for all the time that they've spent suffering and lost and confused around their suffering. And so I think appreciating that, you know, transformation is often bittersweet. Like that is what it feels like. There's, you know, there has to be some willingness to let go of the known and embrace the new. But then a lot of times, and I'm not talking about but there's a lot of grieving that happens over, over workflows. I'm talking about an analogy here, but mm-hmm. that that can feel really disorienting. And, and if you think about it, like whatever, the, whatever they've had in place is what's trusted. And now this is like a new, if you will, object just to use that, that clinical terminology that isn't trusted yet. And so what do we do to earn trust? Right? We're patient and we're attuned and we hold steady with the reactions that are happening for people. And so maybe it's, I don't trust your process because it looks too easy. (laughs) I only trust a process that looks as, you know, as onerous as the one that I've been doing. Um, Maybe it's anger or who knows what it is, right? It could be any number of things. The the five stages of grief. Right, exactly. (laughs) I I think that in some ways that's an apt model, you know, for, Mm -hmm. for making sense of it. So I, I try to stay with people and, and like, you know, if, if you like stay with the affect of it, like, yeah, this is probably a lot to take in and, and say, what's, what's happening for you as you see this, is this confusing? Is this disorienting? Is this. So you're saying group, group should be thinking these things amongst themselves or are you saying. Uh, oh, I, I think I'm saying if I were in the room or. Moderating on the the Zoom (laughs) for this, I would, I would, my style would be to pause and check the temperature of the room and give people an opportunity. If you've been registering these, these, these responses, to speak to them. I think that is that's fantastic. And then on the other side of the uh, Zoom, what would what would you say to the the group? clinicians themselves um you know how should they approach handling change that they know in the long run is probably uh, for the best but right now they having a hard time totally i mean i i i also just i tend to really relate to that i remember like getting a new piece of furniture in my office and my chair being at like a slightly different angle and feeling like (laughs) just the, is it like the kinesiology of it? Like I couldn't think clinically as clearly as 
in my old chair. And that it's just, it's really disruptive. And at this point, I think most people have had the experience of getting a new computer, of getting a new phone, of getting some new device, of getting a, a new TV that they've had to adjust to. And so that's, that's a familiar, I imagine that's a familiar place. And I would want to talk to people like what, what has helped you when you've, you know, it's a normal transitional period to go through when it's not yet familiar. And really what's happening as you're learning how to use new technology is you're developing new procedural memory, right? So, you know, sometimes we refer to it as muscle memory, but Mm -hmm. procedural memory are all the things that we can do on automatic pilot. And so whenever we get a new piece of technology or like we move to a new home or we move to a new office or we get a new car, all the procedural learning that we did in the prior instance of what we've just changed doesn't necessarily translate or apply. And so there is this period where there's a lot more bandwidth that's getting expended, basically laying down that new procedural memory. Once that procedural memory gets laid down, this is gonna feel as familiar and, and, and automatic pilot and second nature to you as that prior instance did. So I would talk to people about what they have learned about themselves and how they navigate those periods of laying down new procedural memory. So a really interesting point. I <laughs> you were thinking about that. I was thinking about whenever back to the chair analogy. Yeah. Whenever I have moved offices, I don't know if I'm the only clinician like this, but I need just the right amount of space between my chair and the couch. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. And I like instantly can tell if it's <laughs> an inch too far or an right. inch too close. Right. And that, that is disorienting. Unfortunately, I can just, you know, that's the chair a, a right. smidge. Right. <laughs> but um, I can, you know, applying that to advanced billing workflows. Sure. You know, you get into a rhythm, you, you know, just the right amount of, um, you know, that you get the feeling that's just right. 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 And so you're saying that over time, as you lay down that procedural memory, mm-hmm. that feeling will come back and totally just a different way. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that if that chair that you moved into was bolted to the floor and you couldn't move it, mm-hmm. that it would only be a matter of time and you would adjust to that new distance. You know? mm-hmm. It's just, if we can tweak it back to what's known and comfortable, that's what we do. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of things that's really hard with, you know, new technology deployments is we can't do that. Mm-hmm. And so we're stuck in that, um, in the change management literature, they talk about um, um, that transitional space, that place where you don't have the old anymore that was, that was known and the new isn't yet familiar. And so you're in this transitional space and it can be, it can be really uncomfortable mm-hmm. and it can stir up a lot for people, you mm-hmm. know, again, thinking clinically, like depending on how major transitions have gone in, in your lifetime and how separations have gone in your lifetime, how they went for you early on in life, like losing something that's known and familiar can, can really trigger a lot of feelings. And so being mindful about that and trying to keep as many things that can stay constant and familiar in the same, constant and familiar in the same as possible while the new thing is being navigated, I think can be really grounding. Mm-hmm. Well, this is very grounding for me, just thinking. Yeah. <laughs> it gives me some ideas for uh, how we can make the process even smoother. Yeah. And hopefully it, it does for clinicians and, and group and clinic owners as well. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Any parting wisdom for, for new grads or uh, 
even you know mid-career uh even late stage career folks on you know what what's one thing they can do to start improving their workflows or their their efficiency or their satisfaction right because all these things it's a little bit about the technology but ultimately it's it's an emotional yeah feeling um, yeah when things are humming and you're in a good flow space you know i i i'm thinking of if this is something that probably all folks have done throughout their career is compare notes with colleagues if there's a particular task in your practice that you just find really onerous and annoying or feels way too time consuming or way too labor intensive ask colleagues how do you handle this because you'll probably get some good ideas and that's how we all learned right like in medical school and residency you would you would watch the students or the residents a year or two ahead of you and and how what their note card system was and what you know Mm -hmm. what they were using to look up drug interactions and 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 we always learn from our colleagues so I think at any stage in your career uh, there are people that you know who maybe are more interested in thinking about optimizing workflow than others and pick their brains that's such a good point. As you're saying that, I was thinking about the feature requests we get and we get a ton of them frequently. And they're often around, there are multiple different ways of addressing a pain point or a workflow and how you ask 10 different clinicians or probably 10 different opinions about mm-hmm. the right way it should be done. Right. But it's probably just everyone's... Uh, have stumbled upon their own preferred way and it just happens to work well with their systems and their how their brain is wired right so it is interesting to see when we get multiple feature requests around the same workflow how different they are right and i think that goes to show that there's a lot of power in the crowd for coming up with optimal ideas all right well thank you um dr dr berlin for coming on this was fantastic I feel like I learned a lot. I'm going to go talk with my team about some of these ideas. <laughs> awesome. And, um, but this was great. And uh, hopefully, yes, hopefully we'll have you on again soon. I know we have some other uh, topics that uh, could be really interesting for our clinicians. And um, yeah, I'll look forward to continuing the conversation soon. Sounds great. It was fun to talk to you, Ken. Likewise. All right. Take care. Thanks. Bye. If you liked today's podcast and want to hear more, Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have a question you'd like to be discussed on a future podcast, send it to enlightenedpractice at luminello.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time.